0: On this episode of Suspect Zero, the cold case murder of Jillian Fuller. Due to some graphic and disturbing content, listener discretion is advised.
1: Each year in Canada, between 70,000 and 80,000 people go missing. The next story is no exception. In the early morning of March 4, 1993, an individual delivering newspapers contacted emergency services to report an active apartment fire located at 8700 Granville Street in Vancouver. The Vancouver Fire Department was subsequently dispatched to the scene, where they discovered the remains of 28-year-old tenant Jillian Blatchford Fuller. Jillian Fuller was only 28 years old when she died. She was last seen leaving the Fraser Arms Hotel at half past midnight and headed downstairs to the Rock Cellar Pub between 1.30 and 1.40 a.m., just hours before her death. A waitress had seen Jillian leave with a man and described Jillian as wearing a pink sweater with a red trim and carrying a pink-colored book. The waitress told investigators that Jillian had made contact with the man that evening and that the two agreed to meet up later at her apartment. This individual has not since been identified, but is considered an important person of interest. Jillian was a victim of a violent assault. Her death was found to be a homicide and her apartment was clearly set ablaze in an attempt to conceal the crime. As there have been many theories surrounding her death, it has been stated that Jillian's social circle was made up of shady and questionable characters, and some even questioned Jillian's poor decision-making. No matter what the explanation, Jillian didn't deserve to die, and answers are sought in this untimely death. Joining us today is Jared Rossman, a student at Western University who has his own theories of what transpired. We always welcome a fresh set of eyes and any new information that could shed light on these unfortunate unsolved cases. Welcome to Suspect Zero, where we not only discuss unsolved cold cases, but serial killers whose crimes are lesser known or virtually unknown. I'm Dawn Washburn, and joining me is my co-host, Dr. Michael Artfield, and special guest, Jared Rossman. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey,
2: Dawn. <laughs> Thank you guys very much for having me on here.
1: No problem at all.
2: Yeah. So, Jared is, uh,
0: for our listeners, Dawn, uh, a former student. Uh, he took one of my forensics classes and now is a member of my Cold Case Society of the Unsolved Crimes think tank that I run at, uh, at Western. And what we've done this year is um, rather than my assign a, a case, a complex case to a number of students. So you remember a, a, a few episodes ago, Don, we had uh, a bunch of my students on who worked on the Springfield 3 case. Yes. So rather than my assign a case this year, uh, I've delegated members to go and find a case that interests them and to dig into it. Um, you know, for for their own reasons, rather than be uh, assigned a case, go find a case, because, I mean, as we know, there are hundreds of thousands of them. Uh, And we'd like to focus uh, both at the Cold Case Society and on this podcast on the lesser known ones, the ones that don't get a lot of media traction and aren't household names. And uh, when Jared brought me the Julian Fuller case, um, that's immediately what I thought. I mean, this has all the hallmarks of a solvable case, you've got a good eyewitness, Uh, you've got um, a pretty tight timeline, you have, uh, you know, a fire that's responded to promptly. And as such, some evidence was able to be saved to the extent that we know that it's not the fire that killed her. Um, You've got this mysterious book that she's carrying that obviously is either destroyed in the fire or taken by the by the offender. So there's a lot we have to work with here, and uh, I basically told Jared, um, you know, take this for the next few months and, and see what you can come up with. And he's going to present that to us today. I have not heard uh, or vetted what he's what he's going to what he's going to offer us. So no pressure here, Jared. But uh, <laughs> first of all, what was it about this case that? I mean, I have my own investigative reasons why I think cases are compelling. What was it about this case that jumped out to you that you wanted to work on?
2: So um, thank you for the introduction, first of all. But uh, when you asked me to look into a case, uh, I looked at a number of cold cases. I looked at a number of cases that had a lot of information. Um, But this case in particular really stood out to me. The reason why is because of... Firstly, the lack of information that's online and available about this case. I was generally interested in it because, again, the lack of information. If you look at newspaper articles and uh, media outlets that were being reported uh, at the time, there are very few uh, indications of her throughout the media. And recently, eh, her case went cold. So that was one of the big factors, They're just the lack of information. I want to dive more into that. The second thing that really stood out to me was some of the abnormalities of the case that we are going to talk about. I'm sure that there was a letter that was sent to the police department uh, eight months after her death, and we can talk about that. And that was very, a very um, peculiar thing for someone to do. Uh, I also found that the sketch of the possible suspect was also very um, weird, I guess would just say, because of... I don't know. It just it, it caught my eye because a lot of the time when you have cold cases, from my perspective, you don't get a composite sketch of the suspect or you don't uh, have a lot of information. But like Michael was saying earlier, there's a lot of little pieces of information that happened throughout this night to happen prior to and after that can kind of be strung together to make a palm um, or to have some possible suggestions against uh, who the suspect is. So that's really what kind of stood out to me um, at first I kind of didn't know if this was the exact case that I wanted to do but after looking more into it and about uh, Fuller's history and who her parents were and the area that she lived in and things that happened that night and the police and the detectives that were on the scene it really started to put together that maybe that this case can be solved with new perspectives and a fresh set of eyes.
1: I love this. I, I don't really know a lot about this case at all. So when um when Michael told me that we were going to be doing it, I looked it up. I was like, OK, not a lot of information, but this is going to be great for you to come in and shed light on what you're because you clearly have researched a lot of things about it, which is great. That's what you're supposed to do. um, And it's nice to hear th- cases that we don't hear all the time. And this is why we do it. Right. So you just explicate what you need to say about it, because I think you're going to be teaching us a thing or two. I'd love to hear what you've said also about where what your research about where she came from. And I think you should start there.
2: For sure. Okay, let's start there. So like you mentioned, you gave a great synopsis of the case itself. Um, Jillian Fuller, she was found uh, dead in her apartment building as the firefighters came. Uh, that's basically what where we'll start then. So before even diving into the night itself, I wanted to do a little bit of background information on her and kind of find out who she was before and what actually caused the events that happened. So, so this is from sort of interrupt,
0: but that classic victimology. You know, any cold case, any any sort of new case, first forty-eight case, you have to do that. So I mean that's that's
2: You've been taught well. If uh, you, into- <laughs> I've been taught well. You <laughs> yeah, amazing. Um, so let's just break it down a little quickly. So the first thing that, went after doing uh, some initial research, was I discovered that Fuller was a very successful young woman. Um, initial reports uh, surrounding the night of there were some witness reports and some of her friends that actually would say the opposite, which we will get into, but from a basis it was stated that fuller was a very successful woman she was fluent in both english and french there were reports from her teachers that she was proficient in piano and one of the really cool things i found was that she was a competitive athlete a speed skater for canada she actually placed in one of the major championships she placed 23rd which is very successful being the 23rd best speed skater in all of canada so she was described as athletic intelligent outgoing had a strong personality around her mid twenties. There was a change in her life. We're not necessarily sure what that change was. There was no reports of an actual change happening, but my theory is that there was definitely a change. Her like I mentioned, her academics started to decline. She dropped out of her speed skating, the competition. She stopped running and her friends perspectives started to change. You know, initial reports of her, like I said, were intelligent, charismatic, Now, reports of her friends after the death and just prior to before the death were that she was alone and that she was anxiety ridden and that she had a huge alcohol dependency.
1: So you're saying that there was a a change in her life. So we don't have any history of any mental health illness as of now. We don't know that yet. Correct. Correct. Okay, so just throwing this out, it sounds like one of those classic cases of parent pressure overload or like what the expectations are to be what you're supposed to be and, and then at some point maybe it just doesn't work out for you or you just want to feel or sense that freedom because the anxiety also comes along with the fact that you have so much to do and so someone to be. I don't know for sure because I don't know her mental health records, but it just sounds like somebody who was overloaded and then suddenly things change for her in the sense of, you know what? I don't want to do any of this. I want to be kind of a bad girl in a way, you know, so
2: 100%, 100%. which hundred percent.
1: Okay. Michael, do you want to say something about that?
0: That, that does frequently happen where you have someone who has um, basically a pre-programmed life, uh, you know, and, working all these levers, athletics, you know, music, academics, volunteerism, a job, mm-hmm. and eventually something's got to give. And often uh, the result is, or, or the the catalyst for that change can just be somebody new enters their orbit and sort of becomes um, either the voice of reason or the devil on the shoulder. And uh, that's, again, one of the lingering questions in this case. Um, but, Jared, you mentioned a couple of good things. Uh, This wouldn't necessarily be what we classify as a a known vice area, which would be something more illicit that doesn't have legitimate businesses operating like a lover or 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 like an open air drug market. Uh, But you're right. This um, in terms of routine activities theory of crime, this is an environment where certain types of people can be located by motivated offenders at any given time and and that's and that's huge um so maybe we can uh i'd like to get into the the theories and and we can come back to the sketch because it is a i mean it looks like it's from the 70s the sketch and we can put it on our on our social channels and uh you know listeners can, can check it out but you don't see a lot of sketch work in, in cold cases much anymore. The distinction being the uh, the Delphi, Indiana, St. Valentine's Day murders, uh, where there's been a number of sketches. But this one is, I, I agree, is, is a little bit different. And I want to make sure we have enough time to get to the
2: letter as well. So if we can maybe delve into uh, some of your theories. For sure. Let's get right into it. So my theory, I guess, when I was looking at this case is that There is a possible, or there was at least a possible serial killer on the loose during uh, the 1990s, the early and late 1990s in Vancouver, someone specifically who was targeting vulnerable young women involved in the sex trade. Um, It wasn't mentioned in reports that Fuller was involved in the sex trade. But again, like you just mentioned, uh, in that general area, there was activity like that. So it's possible that she was Involved in that, so there are some certain things in the case, uh, especially the mo of the killer, that makes me think that he was uh, that this person was a possible serial killer, and that they wanted to either reoffend or already had offended. So I guess if we're talking about in current times, I think that a the serial killer is still alive. I think that it's a male. I think that the male is most likely Caucasian, and I think that right now the male is definitely too old to reoffend or to continue the quote- unquote killings that he did or end abductions um, there are some certain things about the killer and what happened that night that make me think that this killer or the suspect is someone who loves chaos and loves to uh, loves this uh, the thrill of it all I think that the killer wanted to seek a lot of attention from the general public and cause fear in the public but yet remain completely anonymous. And that gives me that indication that they wanted to keep reoffending. So, sorry, continue. Let's flesh that out a bit. What, what makes you think that? So first thing that was right off the bat, we, uh, you guys mentioned really early on that there was a fire at her apartment building. So we know Uh, I think it's pretty common knowledge that there are a ton of different ways to dispose of a body. You could put it in a lake, you could chop it up and put it in a garbage can, you could do whatever to it. But burning of a building seems like a very rash and very aggressive way of getting rid of evidence. Maybe there was something that went on in the permit we don't necessarily know, but we know that there was a fire that was caused and that burned up the body and the evidence. My personal theory is, is that that fire was used as an intention-seeking method. I think that this, per, this killer wanted the fire department to show up and wanted other emergency services to show up and media crews and news outlets to show up to show and see that there was this massive apartment fire and that there was a death. Uh,
0: I mean, fire is a, a very quick and efficient what would we call forensic countermeasure. So right. Method for destroying evidence, destroying uh, the entire crime scene. Now, have I seen a fire used to destroy a body in a multi-dwelling unit where there's a chance that the building becomes a towering inferno and you kill multiple other people? No, I can't think of one, at least off the bat. So I think there is, I think initially the, the intrinsic value of the fire or, or, or its benefit to the crime is to destroy evidence but could there be an additional extrinsic motivation for, for setting the fire that only that would be um of value only to the killer emotionally or psychologically so that's where you that's where the mo here is, is so significant in that yeah um The body could have been left as is, could have been uh, put in the bathtub. There would have been other ways to destroy evidence. If she lived alone, which as I understand she did, it could be days, weeks, or months before the body was discovered and the the, the evidence wouldn't be very useful by the standards of the day anyway. So it does seem like overkill. The question then is, is this about um, sensationalizing his own crime? Uh, and uh, and maybe killing other people in the process that would make him feel very sort of um, omnipotent and be very exciting and yes would be maybe even watching as this scene unfolded as a as a looky-loo out on the street with the other bystanders um, we don't know for sure but I, I so I think you're partially right there's a, there's both an intrinsic and extrinsic motivation the extrinsic really sort of then makes that a signature versus strictly part of the mo. Um, But I I don't know that, unless you've already uncovered this and maybe I'm cutting you off, Um, I'm not sure we have enough uh, other information on the offender's behavior to, to say it's strictly about showmanship.
1: Jillian was an accomplished young woman who people described as being outgoing, compassionate, and highly intelligent. Jillian once ranked 23rd among Canadian women outdoor speed skaters. She studied French, played the piano, and was a competitive runner. Jillian lived alone and the likelihood is that she knew her murderer or invited him in as there were no signs of forced entry to her apartment. Jillian's family seeks justice in her case. Someone has to know something as people tend to talk. If you think you know something about this case, check out Suspect Zero's Facebook page and Instagram for more information.
0: Yeah, let's talk about the letter because this is another thing that uh, if, if it is the offender... Um, so first of all, uh, correspondence with police and media by killers in Canada is essentially unheard of. That's more of a of, of, a, of an American thing. Um, and if this is a case where the killer has been sending taunting letters or a single letter, I mean, here's another example. We talk about this all the time on this show. I mean, h- here's a case that everybody should be talking about because of uh, just how atypical it is. And yet no one's heard of it. So um, let's unpack the letter because that obviously is going to marry up with uh, your theory
2: about the fire. So, what do for we sure. Matter? So, uh, in November of '93, the Vancouver Police Department received an anonymous letter from Washington. So, I'm just going to read verbatim exactly what was on the letter. However, a large part of it has been redacted. It says, "Dear sir, I'm writing about the murder of Jillian Fuller on March 4th, 1993." in parentheses, for which there has been not, not been an arrest. And to say that if you have not already done so, you should consider dot, 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 the rest is redacted. Then it continues. While I would like to think that if I gave my name, you would hold it in confidence. I hope you will not discount the information or ideas in this letter because I write anonymously. So again, like you said, that uh, with the picture of the composite sketch, you might be able to put this letter up online as well. The bulk of it, where we're assuming this anonymous person lists who they think the suspect is, is completely redacted, and there's no other information on it whatsoever. Uh, Nothing's been released to the public. And from reports, it suggests that the police did a follow-up on this, but it didn't result with anything
1: And then there was even a question as to the the letter. Um, So this and I can't remember where I read this. So I'm just gonna read it. But uh, in 1993, the question came up, how would someone in Washington even know about the case? And why would somebody writing a letter uh, from the crime scene have concerns about their identity unless they have something to hide? So th- these are a couple of things that they dappled with. Again, there's not an, a lot of information on this case, which is why shedding light on it's probably going to help with people who may know of it or may know somebody who spoke about it. Because if the person was at the bar that night, remember, there was a, a an unidentified male with her um, that they had stated, right? So they, they haven't identified this person, but... A lot of times these people will will talk, they'll leak. They're like high school students, you know, they can't keep the secret in and they and they want people to know kind of what they did. So if we can maybe reach out with this, the little information that we have to our audience and maybe because remember, we have Canadians listening, Americans, and we have people from all over. Uh, So if they know something or they heard of someone saying, hey, you know. Set this girl's apartment on fire. <laughs> you never know. You just never know what people say. So it's good that we're shedding light on it. And Jared, your theories have been great. So we got to keep going with it. But yeah, so the letter, that came into question about the letter.
2: Yeah. Right, you can add to
1: that.
2: So in totality, I just think that my theory starts to come a little bit more to light when you take all of these pieces and put them together. So like I mentioned before, About a 10-minute drive from the 87 block in Granville is actually the Vancouver International Airport, which is somewhat convenient, I guess, for a killer. Um, There's also a map that shows that from the 8,700 block of Granville to actually where the bar is, it was about a three-minute walk. So the suspect must have known or the person must have known exactly what was happening and what the area was and must have known, like, the routes... And based, if I'm going with my theory, that I would suggest that after the crime was committed, that the offender probably took off from the airport right after, after the fire to get away from the scene of the crime and then allow or increase the chances that he would be able to reoffend again.
0: So that takes us back a few episodes ago, Don, to, I mean, that we're talking about like a Jack Unterweger type figure. If, right. if 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 that's the case um in terms of where this letter came from so let me talk about the letter and communications from uh, anonymous communications first of all i i've i've seen the letter so there could be um i mean he didn't even necessarily need to fly if uh this is a us resident he, he right. that's, that's not a very long drive so that may um and this is for everybody listening. I mean, if people are aware of cases, I don't immediately off the top of my head would, that have a similar MO in in Washington State. Um, I mean, that would be. Uh, I mean, that's something that you could look up at uh, murderdata.org. Actually, is uh, deaths involving fire over you know the '90s in Washington State. Um, so, if this, as some have theorized if this letter was written by the killer and it's uh so we we know the killer um has uh, a knack for forensic countermeasures so if this was uh a decoy letter or what's called a third party victimization letter and there's a handful of people in the world that, that specialize in this jim fitzgerald formerly the fbi being a key one that a lot of listeners may know that name um, this would be when an offender uh, sends an anonymous letter or sends a letter pretending to be somebody else accusing somebody else of the crime in order to basically muddy the waters, obfuscate uh, their own involvement. I mean, so a letter like that um, from an anonymous person naming another person, I mean, that's going to take investigators down a rabbit hole for weeks and buy the the real offender time. So that's one option. The other option is that this is in fact a good faith uh, tip from uh, a concerned citizen who has maybe some some information. I do find it strange given, I mean, it's the 90s, but I mean, it's not that long ago. I, I find it strange that this information would have been communicated by way of a formal letter. And, I, and we'll, we'll put up the, the envelope for the letter uh, online, but I'm, I'm surprised it even successfully made its way to somebody's desk because it's so, it just says like police department, Vancouver chief of detectives no postal code or zip code. Like it's, um, it just seems like this information could have been more credibly and quickly delivered by way of a, an anonymous call. And by that point in Canada and in the US, there were certain protections for anonymous tipsters phoning in. I mean, and that's why you had programs like Crime Stopper. So the whole thing is just really weird. And, and that's, that's, again, another, um, the nature and motive of this missive being sent to police to me just adds another level of mystery.
2: Yeah, for sure. And uh, I just want to add one more thing to kind of sum everything up. There was one other piece of research that I was doing on actually one of the detectives on the case, which kind of caught my interest and uh, somewhat advanced my theory a little forward, um, Constable Ann of the Vancouver Police. She's best known for repeatedly telling the public in the late 1990s in Vancouver that there was no evidence of a serial killer targeting sex workers. In June 2001, she was reassigned from uh, missing people's investigations because of the way that she was handling certain cases. I also want to mention that there are also reports in the late 1990s of actual officers being involved in the sex trade and partaking in sex trade in Vancouver during that time.
1: Jared, you raised some good points. And I also like how we're unfolding, how we also teach our students, because I could hear Michael's exchange with you and, you know, correcting some of the things you're saying, and then you jump on the track. And like, it just, I love hearing things unfold because I think our audience is so used to hearing, like, even when you're watching Dateline or watching these shows, you know, the story's already kind of like done. You know what I mean? How'd you get to that point? What did you research? Where did you go? Because it's very difficult to do this. It really is. And the fact that you did this today, we really appreciate it. You know, it's it's nerve wracking sometimes, but you got it done. You got it done and you have a passion for it. And it's just it, it comes out in how you're and how you're saying it, you know, so it, it's been great to have you on today. Um, and I'm glad we're shedding light on a case no one's heard of, because this is why we do the podcast. People need to hear of the cases. There's so many. Let's find justice for these people.
0: That was great. And yeah, uh, thank you guys very much. So go find your next case now.
1: We will put everything on the Facebook page so people could find what they need to find. We'll put the letter up, everything. Um, so hopefully our listeners will uh, will get a bug and start, start looking into it. Exactly. All right. Just so like me. <laughs> Just like you, exactly. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks, see you next time on Suspect Zero.
0: On the next episode of Suspect Zero the case of healthcare killer Vicki Don Jackson.